My name is Johanna Linder and I work for Doctors Without Borders as the regional responsible for the supply chain in the sub-Saharan region in Africa. Welcome to Logistics Rocks. Thanks a lot. And everyone joining Logistics Rocks has to pick a song. So I have picked Come Sail Away with uh, Sticks. Uh, I love it and it's uh, it's including a transport mode so I thought it it suited very well. Ah, so you, you've chosen a song because, uh, b- both because you like it, but also because it has some sort of connection to, to logistics, transportation. It is one of my favorite songs, but I thought it was a great one. <laughs> yeah, good. So we will add that to the playlist, of course. You can find the playlist on Spotify, uh, as always. Uh, and uh, we've known each other for a couple of years. I've interviewed you for another podcast a few years ago, yeah. but that was in Swedish. Uh, and since then, then you were... Uh, you had just come back from Liberia mm-hmm. uh, during the Ebola outbreak. Yeah. And uh, then you worked in Sweden in e-commerce for a few years. I took a break from the field, yes. Yes, uh, but now you're back inside uh, Doctors Without Borders. But I, but you do something else now. Yes, yeah, so since uh, two years back I started in the headquarter in Brussels. Um, so... I am in a more uh, strategic position where I'm the overall responsible of the supply chain in a, in four different countries. Um, and um, it's pretty much the same kind of a job, but just on a different, uh, different uh, distance and a different perspective. But uh, it's great to continue to work in and be the kind of support that I needed when I was in the field. So it's just a swap of roles. And what is fantastic in MSF is that we often swap. So uh, you can be the boss of your boss and the opposite way around. Mm. And so M- MSF is the French acronym, oh, yes. yes. Sorry, so Médecins Sans Frontières. It's a French organization from the beginning. And then, of course, we, we, we call it Doctors Without Borders, but it's quite a long word. So, yeah, I would prefer if I talk about the organization throughout the interview to just use the acronym of, of yeah, MSF. MSF, but now you know. Yeah, now yeah. you know. Uh, so and and uh, so you you've worked on both sides of this fence, and I know that you have worked also since our last interview. You worked in in different types of of projects, mm-hmm. both long term projects and also these sort of cat- catastrophic response teams. Yeah. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about the difference between those two? Because your organization is is part of both of those types. So MSF started as an emergency organization. Then we have built up a lot of knowledge and we are starting to see trends. So what we are trying to do today is to continue to uh, answer to emergency response, but with much more knowledge behind. So the idea is that you can answer to an emergency without being in emergency mode yourself. Then we are having uh, capacity and knowledge to work uh, also with project of choice. Um, so we have a couple of project of choices in countries where um, there is repetitive um, problems. So I think the best uh, example is the DRC, the D- Democratic Republic of Congo, where we have actually been there for 30 years. And we are having several projects. Uh, one project that is one of these emergency response projects that constantly goes out off in the middle of nowhere to meet new cholera outbreaks, measles outbreaks or um, uh, vaccination campaigns. So, so you have uh, you have a sort of a, 
uh, an in-place supply chain organization already there mm-hmm. uh, to be able to respond to outbreaks, mm-hmm. which of course you cannot plan for, but you know that they will happen, but you don't know exactly where. Mm-hmm. So you have some sort of staging area in in DRC. Yes. So in, in each country where we are um, present, we are having a coordination team that normally depends on the context, but normally they are situated in the capital. It is also important to work with advocacy and working with networking in that country because, of course, we are not there just on our own. So we have to collaborate with the authorities in the country. And from there, so these, so these project of choice is often in collaboration with the Ministry of Health in that country where they are uh, able to locate a problem, but they have not been able to have enough resources or knowledge to intervene. So, in most of the time in the uh, in the capitals, we keep um, a security stock where we are having certain scenarios where we have prepared for. Um, so we have done a pre-analyze of what is normally um, the the recurrent um, diseases, and we are keeping some stock because these countries are not and very easy uh, the infrastructure both internationally and nationally uh, so we can all uh, it's, it's quite complex so we need to also and the, the normal answer in msf is it depends so it depends on the context of course and where we are now i am working quite a lot in the african uh, region but of course we also have a lot of uh, interventions in places like Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan, which has a totally different uh, need. Um, but yeah, we do pre pre place uh, stock to be able to answer quickly. And there is there is this system of kits where there is a kit that is put together with a couple of or quite a lot of different articles that is okay if you are going for an a measles outbreak for x number of people you bring these number of boxes and you're able to be operational from day one it's the same as in any industry Mm -hmm. of course i i'm i'm really curious because you're you're part of the non-medical part of msf Uh, you you have of course doctors nurses and, and specialists in the medicine part but then you have the supportive uh, the supply chain part, for instance, and I think fundraising, things like that. You, 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 you have a lot of experts working in other fields. But are you able to learn or, or borrow ideas from, let's say, e-commerce or uh, military logistics, things like that? Or, or are you looking outside your own domain? Yeah, we have to. I always explain that supplies has, of course, always been moving since we started in the 70s. Um, the last 10 years, we have started to invest properly in, in supply chain management as such, looking into the processes and on, on working on t- continuous improvement. Myself, I, uh, I did work in the private sector before MSF. I did uh, three years in the field. And then, as you, as you said, I went back um, to the private and now back in MSF. And I do think it's, it's a lot of similarities. Um, the basics of supply chain management is the same wherever you are. And we have different complexities depending on where we are and both depending on the size of, of the company or the organization or where you are um, um, putting putting your supply chain in, in place. But the, the logics are the same. So therefore, there is a lot of things we can learn from each other. Uh, and we do, we do really look for um, a lot of competence outside and, um, and work together with others on these parts to be able to develop um, the supply chain. 
And now you talked about when you have these long-term commitments, like in the DRC. But what happens when there is an Ebola outbreak, where you were part of the personnel on the ground, uh, actually ground zero where it happened, uh, how does that situation differ? Because then you're in, in disaster relief mode. When you are going uh, as one of the first one in a team to meet an earthquake, for me, my, my experience has been Ebola uh, and also a quite new uh, refugee situation. Of course, you have to work in a, in a different speed. I think that's the thing that uh, differentiated the most. So we put in place quite different length of missions, as we call it. So that's the... Um, So when you go on a mission, depends on, again, a lot on, on things. But if you compare that I was in South Sudan, which is more of this kind of um, a static problematic area where I was for one and a half year unable to work um, with a lot of different emergencies, but on a more uh, stable mode. And compared to Liberia, where I went for two months. And for those two months, I worked every single day and I worked um, almost all the time. The only thing I didn't do, if I didn't work, I was sleeping and that was it. Because you need to put in place everything. So you are running between the authorities to put in place proper, correct importation procedures. You're running to speak to the airport, the manager of the airport to ensure that they are having the right material to start to receive a huge amount of, of material. So you are running around a lot. You have to do a huge amount of recruitment because you have to build up your team. So, of course, when things are more settled, you can take it step by step and we are able to work more with continuous improvement. While in these matters, we have at least one or two months of, of pure emergency mood where the operations are number one. And then we try slowly, slowly to put procedures. And um, it's literally life or death as well. Yeah, uh, of course. Every day yeah. uh, in that situation. How, how, on a personal level, how do you, how do you cope with that? You were there for two months. Uh, is 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 that the limit for, for what you can? Because the 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 um, the mission was longer. For sure, we were there for. Uh, I think we closed it um, one and a half year after I left. Um, my best way of coping is that we are all there together, so I'm not there on my own. And I I do think that's a difference because I traveled a lot on my own in Africa before I started working with MSF. But then you're on your own, and you have to analyze and and rethink what you just saw on your own when you're out with MSF you're there with a team and that team are there together and they here's here is the difference I think as well that when you're in in supply or in one of these support units you are always kind of better off because you're one step out and I have an enormous respect for the doctors and the nurses that are in daily contact with the patients in these extreme situations where we at the beginning we had uh I think we topped that 60 people dying every single day. Um, so you have a possibility to to uh, just reflect on a daily basis with people who are going through the same. And that is uh, very precious for me. Um, more precious than when you come home and you have the possibility to speak with a psychologist, which is provided. But for me, it is that moment that we are sharing the situation together. It's not for everyone, I think, uh, to do this. Everyone can contribute, but in different ways, of course. Uh, how uh, how would you say a typical response is uh, from a supply chain point of view? Let's say there is a new 
Ebola outbreak or there is a new sort of outbreak of some disease and you need to respond very quickly. Um, what's the first thing you do as a supply chain uh, coordinator in Brussels? So the first thing is that we do a quick analyze of what we already have on ground. So that depends again if we are existing already in that country or not. So what are the resources today at this moment that we have? And then I mean both stocks and and HR resources. What's the level of competence? How many people do we have? How long are they there for? How much stock do we have? Uh, how what what are the roads like? Where are we in rainy season, in dry season? What are the networks we have in on place? So for sure, the first thing we do is to grasp what we have at, on ground at that very moment. So you do an inventory. That's, Precisely, that, that's yeah. That's what you do, yeah. And 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 then you you deploy resources. Do you have to recruit as well, uh, or do you have personnel on hand? We have uh, we have personnel on hand, and we do try in these uh, in these um, emergency interventions to work with experienced staff. So that's also one of these things that we do in the more stable context. Uh, not going to say that we are. Uh, the reason we are there is not for capacity building, but it is one of. Uh, of um, the parts of stable context is to send out first mission where they can try in a more stable context and try to learn um, and develop skills that later on is needed in more tense situations because you need to have it a little bit more in your spine uh, what you're going to do and how you're going to act and know your limits I think that's the most important when you're going on these kind of interventions that Everyone has their own limits on how much they can work and what kind of things they can um, do. But you have to know your own limits because no one else has the time to take care of you at that very moment. You have to take care of yourself. So would you say that it, it, it's comparable to a military response? I do but think there's a, a lot of similarities. Yeah, you, you need to have the basic organization, you need to have the training, you need to have this sort of uh, reacting without thinking mm -hmm. uh, you need to be able to have this sort of level of training mm -hmm. uh, so that you can respond to different types of insecurities mm -hmm. uh, but you know that you will do it in the best way possible exactly and that's where you where, you, where it's good if you have been in situations before and we do ask when people are recruited um, that it's preferable that they have been in situations before traveled in countries and not just been working in a kind of an isolated uh, bubble in Sweden maybe it's good if you have even if it's not together with work or with logistics that you have been traveling maybe on your own or a bit in places where things are not in extreme order and that you're able you know how you will react in 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 a chaotic situation um I do uh I did get uh, one of the most experienced people we have in, in emergency interventions. She told me it was during my time in Liberia where things were very chaotic. And she said, um, the more chaotic a situation is, the calmer you have to be. And that... That's, that's a personality trait. It's a personality trait, but it is also, at least for me, what I see is functioning very well in these kind of situations. But you can, of course, work for MSF without ever having to be in these extreme emergency situations because there's a big need. Uh, so we always have the possibility to move people towards that direction they are interested in, in developing.
if we look at how you how you because uh, you, you're very dependent on people of course but you're also dependent on technology mm. and technology is is evolving rapidly mm. as we all know we have drones we have 3d printing we have digitalization we have better sensors we have all of these things mm. how are you foreseeing uh, that msf can utilize all these fantastic inventions well of course there's a lot of areas of utilization um we have been discussing a lot of course the 3d tr- uh, 3d printers just and i see a lot of similarities to the shipping in in this industry where you have complex um, machines uh, far away from where they are produced so we are having complex machines uh, both in the medical uh, in the hospitals of course but also because we have to provide everything ourselves normally we are uh, putting up a hospital in the middle of nowhere which means we need to be able to provide not just electricity and generators and maybe water pumps but also we have to be able to maintain the cars ourselves so there's an enormous amount of art- articles it's a huge range from um everything from the you know antibiotic to spare parts for for a motorbike and if we could print a bit more to be able to always answer quickly in a supply chain with a short lead time because lead time is one of our biggest challenges that would be uh, a huge improvement we are of course discussing as well the drones today we are using it for delu- um to send blood samples and tests because they are not that heavy. Uh, but we are also looking into where we could send bigger freights as such. Uh, we are doing today from planes, we're doing drop deliveries if necessary. So of course, to have a bit of more precise delivery would um, would improve a lot, of, uh, a lot of interventions. I do also think when it comes to inventory management, if we are looking into internet of things and, and these Parts, there is a lot of uh, development possibilities as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that uh, an industry like the e-commerce industry, you've been working in the e-commerce industry, mm-hmm. even though it's a totally different field and totally different way of of um, uh, thinking about who who has the demands on my system, who are the customers, and so on. Uh, I think we could all learn a lot from an industry which is so data-driven as the e-commerce industry is now becoming. Uh, and I think all industries need to be data-driven in some way. Are you seeing that you are also going towards data-driven approach to forecasting, to prediction, things like that? For sure. Uh, where we are, we're having a lot of visions uh, on on these uh, areas. Where we are now, we are still struggling quite a lot with data quality. So where that that's one of the biggest priorities for us now is to uh, analyze and find out where we need to invest to ensure that we have data quality. And as soon as we are starting to be sure about that, yeah, we would like to put it in to see more because there is so much information in data, of course. And the more we can see the trends and we are able to forecast, today we do work with the uh, standardization and forecasting where we try to push the all the recurrent items so i do use the 80 20 rule like normally 80 percent is recurrent and project predict predictable and then we still keep our kind of 20 percent for the extreme reactivity that is needed in the organization so that's still a huge amount 
to be able to use the data for those 80% to standardize and make that supply chain uh, less time consuming and less um, re- less manual because today it's quite manual, the systems. Would you say that if you have this 80-20 relationship between, between uh, sort of the long-term stable emissions and and the catastrophic ones so the way you respond to are you are you saying would you say that the costs are reversed cost per month or per day or per year that those are the most expensive ones where you don't have these stable organizations well of course and i think the the one of the biggest things that we did change when we started working with supply chain management it was to start to build up proper stocks and we could move over around 70 80% from air to sea And when you do that, you are much, much more than half in your cost. I think it's often uh, three, four, five times cheaper uh, to send the majority of your articles by sea or by road. And then you send the items that are necessary to be sent by air because we do have those ones as cold chain material, dangerous goods or short shelf life medicine that needs to be moving much faster. But the majority is definitely possible to move in a slower way if you can then work more on on, um, on prognose and uh, forecast yeah that's really interesting and 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 if you look ahead 10 15 years what would your job look like i think we are having a accelerating development in supply chain management in the humanitarian world might be the same everywhere and uh, and that you will just recognize this but what i have seen is that 10 years ago the ones who was working with supply chain did not have the skills of supply chain in the same level that it is today. Today, the people that we are able to recruit are on a totally different level on, of competence. So I see that we will be able to move uh, with development in a much, much faster way. And there is the interesting um, part of humanitarian supply chain is that there is room to be uh, creative. There is there is already a culture or, or a context of, of risk taking. So there is um, there is definitely space to try out new things. And we do often do this in extreme emergencies where there is space to try new things to be able to. So in 10 years time, um, I, I think it's a bit hard uh, for me to, uh, to see where we would be. But I, I do hope that the 80% that I'm talking about is totally automatized. And that we are able to use our competence, our creativity uh, for those last 20%. I don't see that we, today we do still spend a lot of time on those 80% and I don't think it's necessary. You think it would be possible for a doctor in Hamburg to give a remote diagnostic session in Africa via a robot that he, re- he or she re- remotely controls? Today, in uh, we are already quite advanced on this uh, in in Syria. So today we are having um, a lot of support in Syria, but we are not able to send international workers into Syria due to the due to the context. So we are having uh, people sitting remotely, sending via via link. I do not know exactly how it works, but supporting on competence. And uh, so we are already there today where we are able to support. And this has been in place for a long time. We did do the same in Somalia where people were sitting in Kenya and on video link. Um, but today we are advancing on that technique and it's definitely uh, the, something we are already investing in. So mm. it's really interesting. 
This is a question I ask everyone. If you have 10 million euros or 10 million dollars, what would you invest in? You have to invest in one thing. I would invest in competence. So I would invest in training or schools to be able to certify and to increase the knowledge um, in supply chain management skills in the developing world. Because what we see today is uh, that we have to enter into that to be able to make it functioning, but that they could definitely carry that on their own. And in that case, not have to depend depend that much on on foreign aid so knowledge transfer that's your investment yeah knowledge communication and collaboration continues for me to be the highest priority and the technology will develop and we will have to continue to just be creative to see where we take that but when it comes to what as long as the human person is a part of the supply chain that's where i see that it constantly fails when I see a failure or error, it always has the major part of it is due to communication breakdown. So we are the weak links in the for supply sure. chain, yes, yeah, human sure. beings. Mm. So maybe we will be redundant in a few years uh, and, and the machines will take over. Well, I mean, if that could be for the 80% and I still have the 20 <laughs> then I would be happy. <laughs> so um, what advice would you give someone who wants to enter your field now? let's say a student or someone who wants to uh, join MSF or make a difference or join some other humanitarian organization, what's your best advice? It's to travel a bit first, uh, talk to people, um, read a lot about it, understand uh, that the world can be quite different uh, in uh, different corners. There is the same logic in supply chain. So I do think you can bring the knowledge that you have from a previous from school or from a previous job straight into a supply chain anywhere else but again to come back to the human factor it's to have a lot of to be humble have a lot of respect uh, analyze talk to people uh, where you come if you go to work together and understand the context where you are in uh, we we all have our advantages and disadvantages in each country and you have to understand what's the external factors where you're going to work and how they are impacting the supply chain where you are. Thank you. And my last question, is there someone you want me to interview? There is this really cool organization called the Logistic Cluster. Uh, it's a cluster that enters into every context where there is a lot of humanitarian activity going on to um, consolidate and support. I, uh, the Global uh, Log Cluster Coordinator, uh, Stephen Cohill, I think he has a lot of really interesting uh, topics to discuss if you would like to go further into the humanitarian supply chain. Thank you, Stephen. I will be in touch. Thank you, Johanna, for joining Logistics Rocks. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Johanna, for that excellent expose on how you can work within Doctors Without Borders and other types of organizations working with humanitarian logistics on a day-to-day -day basis. Really inspiring, and I learned a lot. Next up is Helena Samsche of Globi Drones. Globi Drones is a startup working with drone technology to use in humanitarian logistics situations. 
It could be to distribute medical supplies or blood or something like that. And they are also using these drones to collect data about topographical details, geographical details, and the state of, for instance, a drought or a flood or something like that. And they are using artificial intelligence to help make sense of all these data that their drones are collecting. Helena is a true entrepreneur and it's extremely inspiring to listen to her and her tremendous energy and her drive to improve for humankind using her own company. So stay tuned, load up the next chapter in your podcast player and let's listen to and learn from Helena Sanchez.